Coming up on Tech Nation, dream a little dream, or even a big one. Neuroscience not only tells us about dreaming, history reveals we may be overlooking their value. Professor Siddhartha Ribeiro joins me to talk about his book, The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. Then a side effect of chemotherapy, where hands and feet may be raw, painful, and immobilized. With no current treatment, a new candidate has just finished phase two clinical trials. We'll hear from Dr. Michael McCullough, the CEO of Onquality Pharmaceuticals. All this coming up on this week's Tech Patient. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, Harvard Medical School professor George Church published Regenesis, how synthetic biology will reinvent nature and ourselves. While most people understand that they and all living organisms have DNA, how is that different from synthetic biology? Well, synthetic biology is an effort to apply engineering principles to biology, uh, molecular biology in particular, in the sense that rather than t- taking uh, you know, random parts and bashing them together, we're taking well-characterized parts that we trust. We're doing some of the things that you do in other engineering disciplines like safety uh, engineering and uh, part standardization, and that's the thing that's new. I think what's so important is that people understand a lot about computers these days. They know that they they program computers and their instructions, and the instructions contained in the DNA are just four, G, C, A, and T. And the idea that now not only can we decode anything that's in DNA, we can take on a computer and type G, C, A, T, and it can create uh, that actual DNA sequence. Right. Computers are just two components, zeros and ones, so the, the four versus two are very similar. What's important when you talk, talk about instructions, they're much bigger things. Um, we inherit now with uh, synthetic biology this engineering discipline of computer-aided design, where you actually use computers to design computers, or you use computers to design cars and bridges and so forth. We're now applying this to biology, where we'll try to make a particular shape or a particular regulatory sequence and so forth. There's a huge opportunity here, and I think we're meeting in the synthetic biology community of of, uh, encouraging responsible behavior, um, of uh, encouraging safety and security and licensing, um, where we can make sure that everybody's doing what they've been trained to do. And uh, some of the responsible uh, conduct, best practices include making uh, chassis, as they're called, these are biological uh, organisms that we use in the laboratory, which are uh, locked into the laboratory. They couldn't survive in the wild. We've tested them, uh, not just on paper, but in actual uh, physically isolated uh, communities, and that they can't exchange genetic material with the wild. So they're locked in with chemicals that only are produced in the laboratory, and they can't exchange material 
genetic material. A lot of people a few years ago said, didn't that Craig Venter and his team do so? That's the first time we heard about this synthetic biology. <laughs> the question is, what did Craig Venter and his team do compared to what we can, what we're talking, the larger frame of what we're talking about? Well, well even before the, the Venter team made a bacterial genome, many people had made viral genomes, which are ju just as significant milestones. And just making a copy of a genome isn't necessarily of practical s significance, nor is it something that, that tells you a great deal of biology as a learning experience. So, so they decoded the, the DNA of various genomes, then basically retyped it into the computer and created it again. Exactly. So they made, they made a copy. It was significant that it was, it was read in to the computer um, using state-of-the-art technology and then read out of the computer. So, so reading would be sequencing and then printed out with, uh, at the time, conventional DNA synthesis methods. But what's more significant and what synthetic biology is really about is, is changing the function. Sometimes it can just be changing one base pair in this vast ocean of millions to billions of base pairs can greatly change the function. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with George Church, the author of Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. He remains the Robert Winthrop Professor of Genetics at Harvard Medical School. After the interview, he was headed for a plane where he declared he would be programming a bacteria. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Siddhartha Ribeiro, the director of the Brain Institute at the Universidad Federal do Rio Grande do Norte in Brazil, and the author of The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. Then we look at oncology pharmaceuticals' approach to treating problems with the hands and feet caused by chemotherapy. Their product has just completed phase two trials. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Siddhartha Ribeiro. Siddhartha, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Now, after reading your book, there's no doubt in my mind that dreaming is a part of being human. I mean, it predates language. It's universal, independent of any language. Not only do we dream, but all of our ancestors did as well. Absolutely. And one thing I contend in my book is that, in fact, the reason why we produce so much cultural accumulation uh, over a short period of time is because our ancestors learned to share their dreams and act upon them collectively. Now, when you say cultural accumulation, what do you mean? Well, I'm talking about the cultural explosion that uh, happened in the past 
several hundred thousand years in our lineage. Only 300,000 years ago, our ancestors were starting to make ritual burials and giving evidence of a belief in, in fantastic creatures in another world that could give advice through dreams and help guide the, the behavior of, of people in, in their waking lives. Where did all these ideas come from? How did our ancestors become so creative? Uh, this was probably something that was occurring at nighttime during dreams, which produced images of things that didn't exist, but could exist if they just worked together. Now, what is the earliest record of a human dream? Would that be the Sumerian king Dumuzid? Is that how you say that? Absolutely, yes. Yes, about 4,500 years ago, there's this uh, this uh, story of a, of a mythical uh, shepherd that was married to a goddess, and he had this dream. There was an omen, a bad omen about the persecution, that he was going to be chased by bad men that came from different cities, and in fact, they were demons. And then he, he gets help from several uh, godly entities to escape, but fails miserably and in the end gets caught and sent to hell and tortured. So it's a, it's a nightmare. How do we know this? <laughs> oh, it's written. It's written in, 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 in cuneiform uh, characters. Uh, in, in apparently, uh, the, the character Dumuzid might have existed, might have been a historical figure. And how long ago was that? 4,500 years ago. And we see dreams recorded in various places and the existence of dreams. I know you have pictures of the Sphinx and there is uh, a record of dream there. Yes, uh, there's this this uh, this tale that was recorded that uh, a prince was traveling through the region and, and at the time the Sphinx was already an old building, uh, an old monument. And then he, he decided to stay there and rest and, and took a nap, had a dream with the Sphinx herself telling him that if he were to clean the surroundings from all the, 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 the sand and build a wall to protect the Sphinx from the sand, uh, he would become the pharaoh. And this is just what happened. He built that wall and he did become the pharaoh. Now, some of us say, oh, we never dream. Uh, has science confirmed that we all dream? Well, pretty much everybody dreams, but many people uh, fail to remember their dreams because of the way they they regard their dreams. Now, there is a small group of people that have some brain lesions and that indeed cannot dream. This is a very small minority amongst the people that report no recollection of dreaming. For most people, it's really about paying no attention to dreams. And it's about moving too fast from the bed uh, up when, when people wake up, if they just stay in bed and pay attention and try to remember the last image of the last dream they had, they will find that soon they can recover the ability to rescue all those memories and record them and use them to interpret their own desires, their own difficulties in the possible scenarios that they may navigate. Well, you say that there are three types of dreams, the nightmare, the pleasurable dream, and the dream of a likely fruitless pursuit of a goal. That last one really fascinates me. The likely fruitless pursuit of a goal. Give us some examples. Well, this is there's a strong continuity between the waking life and the dream life. In the waking life, we are constantly pursuing goals. There's a lot of goal-directed behaviors going on, which can go from the very simple reaching towards a, a glass of water up to you know making very complex uh, plans for the future. And all the time we're getting, we're getting our expectations of reward or 
expectations of punishment uh, satisfied or not. So all the time we are, oh yes, I, I, I achieved that. Oh no, I failed. And this is happening all the time at the small scale or at the large scale. And this is mediated in the brain by many different uh, molecules, but amongst them, dopamine, one neurotransmitter that is very important for us to seek what we like and to avoid what we don't like. Now, when we are in REM sleep, in the second half of the night, when we start to have very vivid imagery that we call dreaming, we have the engagement of the same system that uses dopamine to, to signal rewards and punishments. And this is what characterizes the, the dream process. It's not just the reactivation of some neurons that represent memories, but it's the reactivation of those neurons under the guidance of our desires and fears. And this is something that was proposed 120 years ago in psychoanalysis by Sigmund Freud and also in, in analytical psychology by, by Carl Jung. But it, it really got scientific corroboration only in the past 20 years uh, with the work of Dr. Mark Solms in South Africa showing that people that have lesions of these dopaminergic neurons in the brain that belong to this uh, reward and punishment system, these people, even though they can enter REM sleep all right, they cannot have a dream. So dreams are, are really the expression of desires and fears mediated by dopamine that guide the propagation of electrical activity throughout a mesh of neurons that will represent memories and then give light to, to, these, to these desires and give, give them an imagetic agglutination. It will give us an image or a, or a sequence of images that represent, sometimes in a very literal manner, sometimes in a very metaphorical manner, what we really want or want to avoid. Now you said in the second half of sleep, there are two parts to sleep? Yes. Um, there are actually uh, four different phases of sleep. Uh, the first two were quite brief. Uh, when we start to fall asleep, we have some imagery. This is the hypnagogic sleep state. Then we go into stage two, which, which is the beginning of the slow waves that will take over through the cerebral cortex uh, and make us get um, this very deep form of sleep without images or with little images going on or little thoughts or almost no absence of thoughts. And this dominates the first half of the night with the, the third stage, which is called slow wave sleep, because it's, it's dominated by those, uh, those very uh, large uh, waves of, of cortical activity that become slower and slower and, and, and produce um, intermittent silences in the neuronal activity that will lead to this lack of consciousness. When you transit into the second half of the night, then you begin to, to have longer and longer episodes of REM sleep. And this is a very different state in which the, the cerebral cortex is highly activated and the body is very quiet with the exception of, for example, the, the muscles in the eyes. And in the end, what happens in the second half of the night is a process of very strong reverberation of memories that activate our representations of the world, of the objects of the world, of people in the world, in a way that interacts with our own representation. So it's, it ends up being a simulation of, of, of possible future scenarios and also of behaviors that we could take in those scenarios and their possible outcomes. I just thought I was asleep. There's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say that the, the kind of sort of the tone of when 
of how I said the last question, and then there's two parts to sleep. This is a very interesting book in the way you've structured it, because there are a number of chapters, and they really have to do with the effects of, the anticipation of, the predictability of, the creativity of dreams. And so you're not saying, and here's, once again, here's how we dream. This is where it is. It's like it's there. The science is all there. But it's told in this very sort of remarkable way in which, you know, history and present day all bring in what's going on. And of course, what's going on with yourself as you're reading it is that we all dream. And you're like, oh, yeah. I had one of those. Yeah. Or no, I've never had any of those. So I hope I'm doing justice to the book here. Oh, thank you. Yes. You write, for anyone who needs to learn a lot, REM sleep or REM sleep is vital. Why is that? Well, it's because REM sleep plays a very important role in transforming short-term memories into long-term memories. We've uncovered in my laboratory and several others evidence that it's during REM sleep that the neurons trigger uh, molecular mechanisms that will change the way genes get expressed and will change the way that synapses are are maintained. So it, it will promote synaptic remodeling. So in the long term, memories that were acquired and initially kept as active memories, electrically active memories, will Uh, fade away and they will give rise to latent memories, memories that are not active, but that are still there, still able to be to be rescued at any time and be used at any any time because they are coded not not in the electrical activity, but in the morphology, in the in the shapes of synaptic contacts between cells. So give you an example. For example, uh, let's say, can you please remember the first friend you had in school? Can you remember her or his face and name? There okay. were two. Met them at the same time. <laughs> great, great. So, so that was pretty easy, right? You could remember these people quite well because they were important for you. Yeah. You have these memories well stored. Now, did you think about them earlier today or yesterday? No. <laughs> Although we're still no, friends. Right. Yeah, to tell you right, the truth. But, They'll be offended if they hear this. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's not like you were thinking That's about right. them. You didn't have you didn't you didn't have to keep their memories. And if I was, I was thinking about something recent in re- relation to them. Right, right. So, so you were able to go back in time and and retrieve this memory, because this memory is is there, and it's there in the way that neurons talk to each other, in the ways the ways they are wired to each other. But it's not there because you're just thinking about it constantly since then, right? So this is something that was that was. Um, Uh, proposed in 1949 by psychologist Donald Hebb in his fantastic book, amazing book, The Organization of Behavior. And he said, well, memories need to be a two-stage process. In the beginning, yes, it's electrical reverberation. But in the second phase, it has to give rise to to a a latent manner that involves uh, a memory kept in the connections and kept in neurons that are not electrically active. And somehow sleep plays a very important role in connecting those two stages. And REM sleep is, we've been showing uh, repeatedly in different systems for different molecules, it, it plays a critical role in triggering the cascades of molecular events like the phosphorylation of protein kinases and the activation of some, some specific genes that will lead in the long run, you know, six hours, 12 hours, 12 days, 
12 years down the road for you to be able to rescue that memory so quickly and so effortlessly. So you learn it during the day, it's active, and at night it translates it into your long-term memory. Yes, yes. And in the beginning, it's something that happens locally, say within the parts of the brain, such as the hippocampus, and then later it becomes something global within the brain, reaching to different regions, say between hippocampus and various, various areas of the cerebral cortex. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Siddhartha Ribeiro. He is the deputy director of the Brain Institute at the Universidad Federal de Rio Grande do Norte in Brazil, where he is also a professor of neuroscience. His book is The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. You also discuss a lot about animal sleep. Are there any discernible distinctions between humans and animal sleep? I mean, who draw, who dreams? How about bacteria? How about you know anybody, anything living? Do they dream? So this is this is a good question. Pretty much all animals that we know have what we call quiet sleep, which in humans corresponds to slow wave sleep. This this quiet sleep in which you're, you're you do not have vivid imagery at all. Now, only some groups of animals have REM sleep or active sleep, because in some cases we cannot record from their brains yet, but we can know that they have some some form of sleep that is quite active. For example, in the octopus, we have just published this year demonstration that the octopus undergoes not just a quiet sleep state, but then an active sleep state. Every half an hour, they enter about a minute of active sleep in which the colors change a lot, the textures of their of their skin change a lot, their eyes move around, and they're unresponsive to sensory stimulation. So it's very likely something similar to REM sleep. Something like that has been seen in in the cuttlefish. So cephalopods, this group of mollusks, seem to have active sleep. Also, the drosophila seems to have some form of active sleep, the fruit fly. And then in vertebrates, we see active sleep in birds, in reptiles, and in mammals. What is different about mammals is that they have very long episodes of REM sleep. So if, if, if active sleep produces dreaming in all these groups of animals, so it may, it is possible that birds and, and, and octopuses are dreaming just like we dream, but it must be a very short dream. So it's, it's a dream about a simple sequence of behaviors. For example, in the case of birds, we know that they, they have activity in their brains that resemble the activity they show when they sing. So they're probably dreaming about their own songs. What is different now, what is different in mammals is that we are able to dream for up to an hour, even above an hour in the case of the platypus. So you, you can really have the enactment, the simulation of very complex, long sequences of behaviors with social implications, with, with implications that really um, have to do with, with the complexity of our lives in, in the very complex social structure that we are currently inhabiting. That's another question I have for you. Another point you make is how human sleep has been evolving and whoever you are and wherever you are, it's influenced situationally and culturally. Yes. Uh, it's hard for us to, to conceive that pretty much every state or trade decision in the past, in the antiquity, in the Middle Ages, and actually uh, to, the, to these days among hunter-gatherers, all these decisions, private and public, were centered around dreams. There's 
very good testimony of that in the Bible, in, in various books from the antiquity, uh, from traditions such as the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans. Uh, dreams played a tremendously central role in Roman politics. The life of Julius Caesar is, is uh, full of important dreams that represent political maneuvers and represent uh, major decisions that he, he, he took. And it's only in the past 500 years in, in the Western world, in the Euro, Eurocentric world, that dreams really lost this importance and, and, and were ditched completely, right? It doesn't make any sense anymore for somebody to, to go into a, a, a board meeting of some sort and say, oh, well, I had a dream, we should do this and that. People wouldn't accept this. It would be it would be grounds for for impeachment or for or for uh, neglecting that person's opinion. Uh, but it, it wasn't like this. It, it, it wasn't like this. It was the, the other way around. The fact that people had revelations in dreams was something that supported, that gave legitimacy to those visions. Um, and and the way that I see this is that this process of of of, of losing importance for the dream activity is related to the, to the intertwined development of capitalism and science. Up to the end of the Middle Ages, people relied on dreams to figure out the future. Dreams did not evolve as a, a deterministic oracle because these cannot exist. We do not know what the future is because the future hasn't happened yet. Now, dreams evolved in our mammalian lineage, probably starting 220 million years ago, as a way to summarize all the elements that were captured by the waking experience so as to generate possible future scenarios. So it's what I called an, a probabilistic oracle based on yesterday, how is tomorrow to, to be? So dreams probably evolved as, as a harbor light towards the future, quite imp imprecise, somewhat fuzzy, noisy, metaphorical, allegorical, but nevertheless informative. And sometimes, right on. In the past 500 years, it was, this was no longer a, 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 an accepted source of inspiration for most people. Uh, and technical knowledge became the, 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 the light into the future, right? So we were, we were able to predict things in the future. We were able to have uh, people going to the moon and landing on the moon because the future can be predicted using math, using physics, using chemistry, using biology. But at the same time, we, by, by not having any place for dreams in our society anymore, we gave up something that is very important that, and that cannot be provided by anything in science or in capitalism, which is the ability to integrate all these subliminal pieces of information and generate a very explicit image. So often you, there's something going on in your life that you're not noticing, something important, but it, it's not obvious to your conscious mind. And in dreams, you will learn about that, sometimes in a very overt manner. Uh, and this is something that has been lost in the contemporary societies and that I argue is damaging our collective future, is damaging our hopes for a better future collectively. Because we're, first, we barely sleep anymore. We, people are sleeping less and less. The opportunity for dreaming is less and less. And then people don't even talk about dreams, don't remember that they dream. And when they actually happen to dream and remember, it's always a dream about themselves. It's not a dream about everybody. And we need solutions for everybody if we are to stay in this planet for much longer. And, and one important thing is that our capacity for daydream, 
a capacity for for imagining, you know, and be creative in the waking life involves the use of the same brain regions that are used when we night dream. So one thing I propose in the book is that daydreaming, imagination, represents an invasion of night dream into the waking life. You're listening to Professor Siddhartha Ribeiro, the author of The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcast, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, an approach to treating painful reactions to chemotherapy experienced in the hands and feet. I speak with Mike McCullough, the CEO of Oncology Pharmaceuticals. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Siddhartha Ribeiro, the author of The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. We have a dream story in my family. My my father's mother, Grandma Gunn, uh, at the beginning of World War II, she had three sons, three young sons, who all went into the Army on the same day. They all signed up. Well, you can imagine, the entire world was upset. Every family was upset. Their sons, their fathers, their husbands, their uncles, everybody was there. And everybody in that whole family was uh, very upset. And finally, everybody looked at my grandmother and said, well, why why aren't you upset? You know, everyone is just cranked up, and we're going to be cranked up for a good long time. And she said, oh, oh, I had a dream, and St. Someone and it was a female saint and I and I don't think anyone alive today remembers which one it is but I wish I knew. She said all her sons would return home, and they would all be safe. And she goes, so I know it's going to happen. And so then everybody got really mad at her because they were upset and continued to be upset. Five years later, there were all three of them. <laughs> you know, one had been in the Battle of the Bulge. One was in the Pacific Theater. We're talking about, in all likelihood, with three sons, something was going to happen, but she spent the entire war completely calm, that she believed from this 
vision in her dream that Saint, whoever she was, you know, told her that. And it, she totally believed it. And, uh, and all of them survived. Survived. Not a hair on their heads. <laughs> so, so she really felt like it confirmed her her premonition. So right? everyone was still very mad at her because they had, <laughs> they had spent five years all wound up <laughs> worrying. <laughs> you know, she couldn't win on this one. <laughs> and, uh, but she, t- she had the dream. She believed it. And there it was. So, I mean, people do have dreams that are, whether they are predictive or not, they feel predictive. They feel predictive. And this is the key, right? Um, I think that most people in the world still believe that their dreams can be predictive. Uh, the people that don't believe this are in the universities. <laughs> uh, and, and, and my book was written as a way to try to reconcile those, those views because uh, the alternative to saying that there is no premonitory uh, content in dreams is not that dreams are necessarily uh, deterministic. They, they are not, right? They're often completely wrong about things, but they're still mapping con- counterfactuals. They're, they're still mapping possibilities. And, and map, to map possibilities gives you a much, uh, much more, um, it gives you a more leeway in, in adaptation. It gives you the ability to, to, when things really happen, to decide for the best possible choice. Now, in terms of the neuroscience of dreaming, I was impressed by the fact that we could have merely gotten an impression of something that we didn't register consciously, but still it had an impact on our neurons. And then through our dreams, it rises to consciousness. Is that a correct description? Yes, yes. Uh, you could think of dreaming as a, as a very sophisticated form of intuition, right? When, when things are, are not what you would expect, it takes time for you to become conscious of, of, of problems, but you start having some, some signals. These signals, if you're, if you're good at integrating them, you can become conscious early on, or you may be not getting them and, 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 and be fooled by, by the, the apparent uh, configuration of things. Dreams are very good at, at putting together those pieces that are under the threshold of consciousness and, 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 and producing such amazing, striking images that will make you wonder what does that mean and in wondering that eventually you can come up with the understanding oh ah ha it means that when i was studying engineering i remember this old we called an old crusty engineer came up to me and he goes you know because i was struggling with something uh trying to solve something and he said before you go to bed every night figure out what problem you're trying to solve and by the morning it'll either be solved or you'll be on your way and sure enough it worked (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yes. This is what uh, uh, people have known for, for people have known for millennia that if you have an intention attached to your dream, if you go to your towards your dream wanting something, wanting a diagnosis, wanting a solution, wanting uh, an inspiration, this often happens, right? So I think it's in, if you if you look into the way people dream in among uh, Native Americans, for example, in many different societies in North America, in Mesoamerica, in, in South America, uh, indigenous peoples will will go towards dreaming, not like somebody that will be hunted by the dream. Dreams will not just happen to them, but as people that go 
after something in the dream. In the Eurocentric contemporary society, people dream when dreams happen to them. They don't have any intention attached to the, to the act of dreaming, right? So when they say, well, I had this dream, it happened to me. So it's something like the dream, the dream hunted me, right? The dream found me. But in, in those Native American societies, often people go after something specific in the dream. So they go hunt. They go hunt a, a new name, a new song, a solution for a problem. In the case of, of the famous dreams of, of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, when they were facing the, the, the troops of, of uh, Custer uh, in, in the invasion of their lands uh, in the 19th century, they were searching for dreams that could elucidate their future and could help them to survive. So it's a different attitude because it's an attitude that sees dreaming as a gateway uh, that allows us to, to really have insights, to have solutions that were not apparent, that wouldn't come to our minds in, in, if we were not there in that particular mental space, simulating possible futures and simulating uh, behavioral um, exits towards survival. Well, I think of all those type A people that say, good, I can work all day and now I can work all night. I think we are, we are, we are undergoing a, a crazy period in, in the human history in which people really believe they can be healthy uh, despite the fact that they sleep very badly, eat very badly, and don't exercise properly. Without those three things properly aligned, a good health is nearly impossible. Um, now, the basis of this is a good night of sleep. The basis of this is, is, is sleep because it, it is during sleep that we produce uh, many of the molecules that we need to survive, that we restore, we replenish uh, several uh, uh, metabolites that need to be in place, that we also clean the body and clean the brain in particular from toxins that are generated during the waking life. And it is during sleep and dreaming that we rearrange memories around the brain, that we promote a, uh, a triage of memories so that we can really uh, remember what's important, uh, restructure uh, old memories so as to generate new ideas so we can be creative, forget a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be remembered anyway. And in the case of things that we will never forget, but that, that are unbearable, it is also uh, during this process that uh, things get uh, encumbered and, 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 and hidden in the brain in the process that we can uh, associate with, with uh, uh, psychoanalytical um, repression of memories. Now, I, I have to ask you about those who have lived through or are living through horrendous situations. Could be soldiers in combat, everyday people in war-torn areas, children living in these areas, or possibly even a car accident, whatever it is, a catastrophic event. And some of these people have dreams that literally wake them up for decades. Um, what's going on there? And, and is it possible to turn that around? Hmm. So repetitive nightmares are a hallmark of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Um, not all repetitive dreams reflect PTSD, but most cases of PTSD will have repetitive nightmares as one important symptom. And these needs to be addressed. These need to be treated. They won't go away uh, naturally, spontaneously, because in fact, every time the person undergoes this sort of reactivation of those horrible moments in the past, they will actually be strengthening those memories. They will be um, carving uh, deeper in the neuronal uh, 
network uh, this particular memory that is so unbearable, right? So things that were, memories that were acquired with a lot of emotion, they tend to linger. And when this is extreme, they tend to linger forever. So people need assistance. They need psychotherapy that can be of various sorts, but usually it's, it's uh, the approaches to pair the reactivation of that memory with a very um, uh, mild, non-menacing environment, with a very, uh, with a very um, neutral setting, such as the psychoanalytical setting. But, you know, it, this is the case for many different traditions in psychology. And I should say also in traditions that are beyond science, that are in the realm of, of, of uh, uh, traditions of the original peoples, you know, shamanic practices, they, they tend to agree that this process is a process in which the memory needs to be evoked in a situation that, in which the person feels safe and then can slowly start to associate these memories with something that is not as bad. Recently, in the past 10 years, uh, research has shown that some substances can really, really help this process. So psychotherapy assisted by MDMA is now a very well-recognized therapy for PTSD and will very likely, in most cases, uh, lead to to an improvement uh, that is fast but sustainable. So what we're looking at is what's impressed in our brain and consistently coming up again and again, you're replacing that with something else in your brain because your brain is very uh, elastic or plastic, whatever you want to call it. Yes, yes. So the, the, our memories are, are not written in stone. They're written in cells that are quite soft and they're moving and changing uh, and, 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 and having their shapes remodeled all the time. So when people have these kinds of symptoms, they need treatment. And, and the good news is that the treatment works and people can, can really feel much better if they, if they put themselves through a protocol, for example, of uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy or even you know, non psychotherapy without the assistance of, of, of drugs. Do you say, imagine all the people living inside your head. Those are the people in your dreams. Yes. Yes. I think this is one beautiful thing to consider is that our minds are inhabited by tons of characters, real characters, imaginary characters, sometimes character, characters that we invented ourselves, but they're all somewhat autonomous. They're not ourselves. They're not uh, the same as, as the, the conscious ego that navigates this zoo of characters, right? So it, this is a contribution that Carl Jung made very clearly uh, in his analytical psychology. And, and he talked a lot and he wrote a lot about his encounters with those creatures of the mind, what he, whom he called imagos. And he learned from them. He had a, a tutor-disciple relationship with them. Uh, and, and he was considered flaky for a long time. But in the past 20 years, neuroscience has uncovered evidence, very positive evidence, that, for example, in the hippocampus, in, in one part of the brain related to the acquisition of new memories, there are neurons that really, really... Uh, respond specifically to particular characters. For, so, for example, uh, is, has been shown by Rodrigo Quiroga from, sorry, has been shown by Rodrigo Quiroga from Leicester University in the UK that uh, there are neurons in the human brain that will be selective for Luke Skywalker. They will like any picture of Mark Hamill. They will like the name Luke Skywalker written or said by a male or a female, and they might even respond to Master Yoda 
but they will not respond to Emma Thompson or to Sylvester Stallone or to Homer Simpson. Uh, so the, the conjecture that our brains are inhabited by a, a plethora of characters and that dreams represent the encounter of those characters with our own representation, I would say this is the most parsimonious scientifically backed hypothesis at this moment. Well, Siddhartha, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Well, I'll be very happy. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Professor Siddhartha Ribeiro. His book is The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. It's published by Pantheon. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. potential side effects of chemotherapy to directly affect the hands and feet and can be so debilitating that the cancer treatment itself is stopped. One is hand-foot-skin reaction, and the other is similarly named hand-foot syndrome. Dr. Michael McCullough is the CEO of Onquality Pharmaceuticals. Mike, welcome to Tech Nation. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Now, there are several medical conditions which severely affect the hands and feet, and two I am thinking of are often confused because their names are very similar, and in visually, they may even seem the same. One is called hand-foot-skin reaction, and the other is hand-foot syndrome. Let's start by distinguishing between the two. Mm -hmm, sure. So hand-foot-skin reaction is caused by a certain class of, of anti-cancer therapies, and they tend to be localized in your hands and feet among pressure points, right? In contrast, hand-foot syndrome is caused by a different class of anti-cancer therapies. It looks very similar, and you see patients with blisters, cracking, open sores. But hand-foot syndrome is a little bit more diffuse across a broader area of either your palms or the bottom of your feet. And when you have it, you almost don't care. <laughs> just, yeah, it's just make it stop. Make it stop. Right. And when you say anti-cancer therapies, you're talking about what we often call chemotherapies? That's correct. Chemotherapies are sometimes people refer to other classes as targeted therapies. They're a little bit different in, in how they function. Now, while you're working in both areas, uh, you're further along in hand-foot skin reaction. Uh, let's tell people a little more about what it feels like and how serious this condition is. Sure. Well, hand-foot skin reaction can be quite painful. As I mentioned before, it manifests itself in the hands and feet as cracking, peeling, open sores, blisters, and it can be quite debilitating and prevent patients from even undertaking normal activities such as picking up objects, driving a car, feed themselves because they have a difficult time grabbing either a fork or a knife. 
you can't even walk from one place to another. Sometimes that's true. Patients have a very difficult time walking, getting up and down stairs, just undertaking normal daily activities. What can we do about that today? Well, right now, there are no approved therapies to help manage these toxicities. So what we've seen is physicians will tend to start their patients out at lower doses of their chemotherapy drugs to prevent the occurrence of these toxicities. And sometimes they either they discontinue therapy or they require patients to take a lower dose or stop their therapy for intermittent times. That's just so counterintuitive. It's like I'm trying to get this cancer going, but it's so painful I can't take the therapy. Well, that's where we think the major medical need is. I mean, our view is patients need to be more concerned about fighting their cancer and not be so concerned about fighting their anti-cancer therapies. So we're talking about hand-foot-skin reaction. What is Unquality doing here? Well, we have a, a, a program designed to treat patients with hand-foot-skin reaction. We recently finished or completed a, a phase two clinical trial. Uh, what we have done is developed a drug you can apply it to your hands and feet two or three times a day. It's an investigational agent still, and it's it designed to block the effect of the anti-cancer therapy and allow the reversal of these toxicities in your hands and feet. Now, what is Unquality doing here? Well, in terms of hand-foot-skin reaction, it's important to remember that cancer cells, they're different, right? They tend to grow faster in an uncontrolled way. For them to do this, they're going to need more blood, right? So cancer cells will turn up the normal machinery that tells the body to make more blood vessels because they need to grow, right? And, when, and your doctor will give you a medicine to try to block this machinery. And unfortunately, the medicine goes throughout your body, right? When it interacts with, with normal tissues, it tends to prevent the blood flow or restrict the blood flow to them as well. And when it happens in the normal tissue, we see things like half a skin reaction or the, these blisters and painful open sores that occur in your hands and feet. So our view is we want to turn on the normal blood vessel, normal vasculature in your hands and feet to reverse these toxicities. Well, that seems pretty simple. It's like in cancer, we're trying to cut down on, on the, all the, the blood feeding the cancer and then to your hands and your feet, it's like, well, they got a couple of signals as well. It's turned down from what it normally is. And so you're just turning it back on. How do you do that with just your hands and feet? Well, that's interesting. So what we've developed in, is a formulation we can give topically to your hands and feet two or three times a day, but it doesn't interfere with the systemic anti-cancer therapies. It just, just remains on your hands and feet. and doesn't get circulated widely throughout your body. Okay, so you have a, a cream or an ointment you're putting on your hands. I have to say, you know, skin is really protecting us from everything. How do you, how does it get through? How could anything get through the skin to do something as significant as, as blocking what the cancer drug is doing? You're absolutely right. Your skin's very effective at keeping things outside your body. So it takes a lot of specialty expertise and formulation development. And a good example of that might be the estrogen patches that are frequently used to deliver estrogen across your skin, right? It's very effective, but it takes a quite a bit of sophisticated chemistry to be able to do that. Here you are, you've just completed some um, some trials, which means that you've completed taking all the data. And, and in, in truth, it's going to take you a while to put all the data together, to prepare it all, to come back to the FDA to say, okay, this is what we really found. Um, uh, but 
what went on during those trials? What what did you do, and and how did you know? How do you know it's going to work? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know it will work, but uh, you know, part of the clinical trial process is designing the right kind of experiment to prove that it works, right? So we measure uh, many different things. Of course, one of those is you know how effective is our drug compared to placebo at reversing the toxicities. But we don't know that that's enough, right? We really want to measure other things that are important to patients, including quality of life. So we have a very sophisticated quality of life questionnaire that we have patients fill out. And it measures many things beyond just pain. Certainly symptom improvement is important. But we also want to know, you know, how do patients do on the drug? What other elements such as can they undertake normal daily activities? You know, can they pick up a hand, I mean, a fork or a knife? Can they get around? Can they walk? Can they get up and downstairs? Can they do things they would normally do without the toxicity, but also things such as self-care? You know, for example, can they bathe themselves? Can they dress themselves? But also things that are very important, such as impacts on their social setting. You know, are they still comfortable in social environments? Do they feel comfortable leaving the house and engaging with their friends and their family? And also the psychological elements of having some of these toxicities, you know, does it degrade their confidence? You know, many times cancer patients, their therapy toxicity will have a negative effect on their quality of life, particularly when it comes to things like depression and a feeling of helplessness, you know? So our view is these drugs hopefully will have an effect on these features as well. So how long do they have to put on this cream or ointment to test this? Well, we measure them in, in two different dates. Certainly three weeks is important. You know, generally speaking, it takes the tissues in our hands and feet about three weeks to turn up. So we do assessment for the primary point of symptom improvement at week three, but then again, also at week six, and we want to make sure this is a durable effect. And six weeks gives a chance for the skin to do some more healing. So really what the FDA is looking for is um, clear, almost clear. So that maybe is more important at six weeks than three weeks. And let me ask you this. The, uh, you said some people were getting uh, the, the cream, but nothing is in it. And some people are getting the cream and it has the, uh, has the, the drug in it that you're, you're treating them with. Um, what happens if you're one of the people that you didn't get anything? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they get treated, they get cared for over six weeks, but unfortunately, you know, it's not a crossover trial. So they'll get re- assess for activity, but they won't have access in this trial to the treatment. What's interesting for me is these are phase two trials, and usually you go on to really large phase three trials. But in the case of of, of conditions for which there really isn't a treatment, sometimes we're able to take the uh, good positive results on phase two and go forward to to release. Is that going to be possible here? It's unlikely. You know, we will have an interface with the FDA the first part of the year with the data to discuss what the next steps are. You know, we feel we probably need to collect some more data and some dose ranging studies before we can make a final determination about the final utility of the drug, including possibly a phase three study. In the first part of the interview, we did mention a, a, a different condition, hand-foot syndrome. You're also working on that? That's correct. We, we hope to start a clinical trial next year to evaluate one of our compounds as a treatment for the prevention of hand-foot syndrome. Before you even get there, if you're taking this kind of chemotherapy, then start with the ointment right away. Yeah, it turns out that 
this class of drugs that cause hand-foot syndrome, the frequency of the toxicity is much higher, and it makes it a little more practical to study these as, a, as essentially a prophylactic than a treatment. Now, are you going to use the same treatment for hand-foot syndrome? No, it's not possible. Hand-foot syndrome is caused by a whole different class of anti-cancer agents. So it turns out that in the same way we know that we have these hallmarks of cancer, remember the cancer cells are growing in an uncontrolled way. So one way that we can prevent them from growing is to prevent them from making more DNA, right? So when doctors give you this class of chemotherapy that blocks the tumor cell's ability to make DNA, again, this goes systemically throughout your whole body. When these cancer drugs interact with the you know, normal cells in your hands and feet, you have also the occurrence of Hanfoot syndrome, which is you know, the blisters, the open sores, the cracking, the peeling. is quite painful and debilitating. And that's caused by the fact that they're no longer producing DNA the way they used to? Yeah, I mean, our cells always want to turn over, and when they can't make the DNA, then they can't survive and they die. And that's really what is the root of these toxicities in your hands and feet. So are you using the same drug inside the ointment people are putting on or a different one? No, yeah, it's different. Unfortunately, they're not the same. So these drugs actually are quite targeted, you know, to a particular essential mechanism, how the anti-cancer drugs work. So the same way we might treat hand-foot skin reaction, we have to use a different drug to treat hand-foot syndrome. So every time you have a different class or you know, a, a common approach in an anti-cancer drug, you have to come up with a new drug to block it. That's correct. The general approach is similar, but you know, the, the way we deliver drugs across the skin has to do with how we formulate those. And since sometimes drugs have different properties, we have to have a very different formulation to be able to get them across the skin. So you definitely have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're lucky. We have you know, very good scientists and expertise in, in this space. So you know, that's part of, of how we, we approach these problems. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming in. I hope you come back. See us again. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today is Dr. Michael McCullough, CEO of Unquality Pharmaceuticals. More information is available on the web at onqualityrx.com. That's on, O-N, quality, and the letters R-X, onqualityrx.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.